welcome to Touching Base, the new weekly podcast series from Genetic Engineering and Biotechnology News, or GEN. I'm Fei Lin, Senior Editor of GEN Biotechnology, GEN's sister peer review journal publishing original research and perspectives across the biotech field. I'm excited to jump in the rotation as moderator for this episode of Touching Base. Joining me from Jen's editorial team this week is Uduak Thomas, Alex Filipidis, and Jonathan Grinstein. For new listeners to our growing podcast, Touching Base is here to discuss the stories and events of the week in biotech. In addition to hearing from our Jen editorial team, we'll also interview special guests to dig deeper into some key stories. Later in this episode, we'll hear Alex's exclusive interview with Rahul Kakar, president and CEO of Tome Biosciences, the new genome editing startup which recently debuted with $213 million of venture funding. Make sure to stay tuned to hear more about that story. But first, let's chat with our editorial team about some key stories that crossed their radar this week. In the news this week and nowadays, Nearly every week is the topic of AI or artificial intelligence. Uduak, let's start with you. You covered a story describing an AI scientist design experiments in the lab from Carnegie Mellon. Can you tell us more about this new system? Sure thing. Thanks, Faye. And yes, you are right. Everyone is talking about AI these days. Um, in this specific case, we're talking about large language models, um, obviously with ChatGPT and other um, similar systems, there's a lot of conversation about how these can be used to solve various research problems. So at Carnegie Mellon, a team of scientists have used a bunch of LLMs, including ChatGPT, to create what they are describing as something of an intelligent lab partner that is able to design and execute research experiments um, in an automated lab. So this system is aptly called co-scientist because of course it is going to be working, the idea is for it to be working alongside the scientist. And they used it uh, to demonstrate how you could run uh, chemistry experiments, in this case, uh, synthesis experiments um, in the lab, basically remotely having the system design the experiment, launch the experiment and run it using various instruments in the lab. So co-scientist has a bunch of different capabilities. Um, essentially, the way it works is a scientist could ask, for example, co-scientist to find a compound that has some specific properties. Um, basically, the system, because it is AI, scours the internet, all sorts of technical documentation, anything it can find, synthesizes that information, and then chooses uh, an experimental plan um, for making that particular compound that the scientist needs. And then it can basically send those to an automated lab, um, and then the instruments take over and complete the experiment. It's, it's pretty impressive. This is a proof of concept system. So obviously it's early days, there's still a lot of work, but the Carnegie Mellon team are, are pretty excited about it. And um, in fact, as part of this process, they worked with a place called Emerald Cloud Lab. It's a, a Carnegie Mellon alumni funded uh, remotely operated research facility. And they use this to sort of put co-scientists through its paces. And now Carnegie Mellon separately is working with um, Emerald Cloud Lab to establish a version of that lab at the university. And this will include tons of equipment that scientists will have access to. Um, and what's maybe relevant, I think, to our audiences is this would include things like instruments for cell culture, sample prep, mass spectrometry. 
And the scientists that developed co-scientists are continuing to work on developing the system for use in this cloud lab that will be at Carnegie Mellon. So in the future, we may see um, co-scientists at work um, helping scientists design and run experiments in at the Carnegie Mellon Cloud Lab. So it's pretty exciting. Obviously, this is just one example. There, I'm sure there are other researchers that are working on similar systems across a wide range of scientific disciplines. So this is something that will be really interesting to see how it develops moving forward. Um, and so for folks who are interested, this paper was published in Nature this week. So definitely check it out. Thanks, Udoak. I think I think one of the things that struck me about uh, these new AI scientists is that one of the things from this specific story is that they said you no longer need to have that coding expertise in order to access some of these automation tools. And, and that's this trend of being more accessible and really having access to tools in using natural language is really exciting to see. I remember I don't know, 10 years ago when I was working in, in computational protein design, it was absolutely critical to take those coding classes and be able to uh, have, have that background. But nowadays I see people design proteins in a browser, et cetera. So as you said, absolutely. It's, really, it's really exciting to see where these AI tools will go in these different disciplines. Absolutely. I mean, I, I I haven't coded personally, but I know lots of people that have, and it's always seemed like it's a very time consuming, takes a lot of work. There's so much you need to know. And these systems are so smart. They're able to do it relatively quickly. So I think it will definitely be a boon um, for any scientists who are, are working on these experiments. They'll have access to these kinds of systems. It'll make their job easier, I think, in many ways, but also it frees up time to focus, you know, very exclusively on the research that you're interested in, on finding those new drugs, on designing those new materials. Um, so I think overall, this will be a, a great addition to, to the scientific uh, toolkit. So I'm looking forward to seeing more. Great. So definitely keep an eye out for that story and that paper. And Shifting gears to another aspect of AI, Jonathan, you covered AI from a different angle, looking at discovering antimicrobials, I believe, <laughs> if that's correct. Who were the players in that story and what were the highlights? Yeah, um, you know, it's funny that you mentioned the antimicrobial things off the bat because um, we'll definitely come back to that aspect at the end. Um, because the player here is a, a postdoc by the name of Felix Wong in uh, Jim Collins' lab at MIT, or one of his labs. And, um, you know, Felix has a background in math and physics and was attracted to this lab um, because of the combination of machine learning techniques and synthetic biology tools that, uh, you know, are in Jim's lab and Felix decided that he wanted to create a model where they would be able to identify classes of compounds that each uh, goes after certain targets. And to do so, he employed a tool called explainable AI. And it's kind of funny, this it's it's almost like this like meta thing, but like explainable AI, from my understanding, is an AI tool that gets programmed into it. How it explains to you how it made its uh, model and predictions and allows the user to go into it to understand the decision-making process. Um, so, and it can even be tweaked accordingly. And 
This is different from a lot of uh, deep learning networks uh, or machine learning uh, models because a lot of them are black boxes from my understanding. So you just kind of, you train them on something, they do their thing, come up with their model and they spit out a bunch of, uh, you know, candidates that can be tested. But what really goes into the calculation doesn't necessarily come out with, um, you know, with the candidates. This would be something like, you know, speaking of chat GBT, it's like as if you gave chat GBT a prompt right now, you, you give it a prompt and it spits out a bunch of things back at you. With something like explainable AI, it would tell you why and how it gave you the answer that it did, um, in addition to spitting out whatever text that it does. So with that in hand, um, Felix and colleagues in Jim's lab, they use explainable AI and they paired it with this um, phenotypic screening system based off of synthetic biology where they could test for cytotoxicity based on certain kinds of stress. And um, in doing so, they screened tens of thousands of compounds, which then fed into their AI network, led them to screen something like, or made predictions for 12 million different kinds of compounds. And this was all for antimicrobials. And they were able to come up with a class of compounds that target um, staph infections or MSR, MRSA. Um, and yeah, I, they, they were able to show some compelling um, data that this all works. And what's kind of the next step or going back to the antimicrobials thing is, so Felix about a year ago decided that he teamed up with a buddy of his, uh, Max Wilson, uh, a professor of molecular biology at University of California, Santa Barbara, who is a specialist in optogenetics to create a company called Integrated Biosciences, where basically they're doing exactly what was described in this nature paper, but they're doing it in the context of uh, aging related disease. So what they've done is created an optogenetic system where they can control cells and basically like make them age <laughs> and um, screen them for aging related stresses, um, you know, maybe things that are related to senescence or the integrated stress response. And um, from there, try to identify compounds. So they're, they're in early days. They, they, they got started in mid 2022. Uh, they're still working off their seed money and have runway for a little bit. There's six people on that staff, but you know, it sounds really exciting and they've done some really cool work. Um, so far that they've published in Nature and some other journals as well. So really cool stuff there. Um, you know, I'll be curious to see how much explainable AI gets brought in. Uh, it just seems like the next step in the right direction in terms of understanding what's going on when we use things like AI um, for drug discovery. So yeah, very, very cool stuff. Thanks, Jonathan. I I think for sure anything that's uncovering that black box is is going to be of of interest to folks in the space. So definitely keep an eye out for that story and what's coming from that company and antimicrobials. All right. And I know, Jonathan, you also cover the topic of vaccines this week, which we all know vaccines have continually been in the news since the pandemic. Can you tell us more about that story? Yeah, absolutely. So this story takes us um, to Africa. Um, so BioNTech, you know, the, the company behind the uh, mRNA COVID vaccine or, or one of the mRNA COVID vaccines, um, has been working towards a pledge to get 
um, mRNA vaccines to Africa and to make them accessible um, to countries specifically in Africa, not 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 as a not to, not to be outsourcing them to other countries, but um, they pledged 150 million dollars to create a a facility in Rwanda, and they now have set, sent over their first um, module, if you will, to this entire site. Um, they're calling them a biontainer, B-I-O-N-T-A-I-N-E-R, or like biotech in a container. And it's a state-of-the-art solution for manufacturing mRNA medicines. Um, and it's, uh, you know, it it's, it looks like they're going to be on their way to start making vaccines next year or, or in at least by 2025. I know that they're going to have like it all up and running with specialists and have tr staff trained in Africa uh, in the middle of the next year. But yeah, it, it looks really exciting. They're shooting for something like COVID to produce 50 million product doses annually, or the, sorry, the COVID vaccine. And they're also gonna be looking to make uh, other sorts of vaccines as well for you know, uh, diseases such as HIV, tuber tuberculosis, malaria, monkeypox, things that you know could cause epidemics on a global scale and are quite prevalent in Africa. So, yeah, BioNTech is uh, looking to really uh, roll that out. And um, at the same time, they've also been doing uh, clinical trials for malaria vaccines in the U.S. and tuberculosis vaccines in South Africa. So they're really, um, you know, trying to follow through with this pledge to make vaccines accessible to people in Africa. And this seems like a, a first step in the right direction. Vaccines are surely hot in the news this week, as I shift to you, Alex, in terms of business news. Do you want to tell us about what's going on with Moderna and Merck and their mRNA cancer vaccine? Sure thing. Uh, say thanks. Um, uh, over uh, the past week, uh, Moderna and uh, Merck and company announced positive uh, phase 2B data, more of it, I should say, for their cancer vaccine candidate. It's a messenger RNA-based individualized neoantigen therapy, or INT for short. Uh, Moderna investors rushed to buy on the good news. The shares jumped 10%, which is not really a huge jump, but it's a sign of life for a company whose stock has been declining most of this year because sales of its COVID-19 vaccine spike vacs have failed to meet earlier forecasts or guidance uh, to investors. For example, uh, Moderna was predicting six to eight billion dollars uh, in sales. But uh, more recently, uh, a couple of weeks back, the company revised that guidance, scaled it back to, quote, at least six billion dollars. So what was uh, the big news then? The companies uh, trumpeted their latest data from the uh, Keynote 942 trial. Uh, that's assessing the uh, cancer vaccine in combination with Merck's cancer immunotherapy blockbuster Keytruda in the primary endpoint of recovery occurrence-free survival in patients with stage 3 and stage 4 melanoma following complete resection. And there was a scheduled three-year follow-up uh, in which uh, uh, it was found that uh, adjuvant treatment uh, with the vaccine plus Keytruda reduced the risk of recurrence uh, of, or death by 49% and the risk of distant metastasis or death by 62%, which the companies said continued to demonstrate a clinically meaningful improvement. 
So why then the uh, increase in Moderna stock? Well, investors believed that the data was strong enough for Merck and Moderna to try and pursue a faster approval of their cancer vaccine, which Moderna calls mRNA-4157 and Merck calls V940. Now, that's not likely, according to uh, an analyst with Jeffries, Michael Yee, who notes that the data came from a phase 2B trial, and the FDA, in his view, will most likely want to see phase 3 data uh, before deciding on an approval. Uh, now, Moderna and Merck already have launched a phase three trial, which began over the summer in patients with resected high-risk stage 2B through stage four melanoma. And that trial is designed to enroll uh, over a thousand patients at more than 165 sites in 25 plus countries. And that trial's primary endpoint is, again, recurrence-free survival, but there's also secondary endpoints uh, such as distant metastasis-free survival, overall survival, and safety. And, and, and for what it's worth, the Merck shares actually dipped 1% on the news. Uh, likely, Merck investors weren't as concerned because Merck has a lot of other products and healthier cash cows in its portfolio, like Keytruda, which already in the first nine months of this year racked up more than $18 billion uh, in sales this year. Thanks, Alex. Yeah, I know since the COVID-19 pandemic and the vaccines uh, from Moderna and Pfizer, et cetera, that the market has you know, seen, seen the shift as we are coming out of the pandemic. And so where is Moderna and Merck and all of these players that nowadays post-pandemic with, with developments like this? Well, uh, Moderna is looking to an RSV vaccine as its uh, next uh, approved product uh, that it envisions will begin generating sales in 2024. Uh, and likewise, you'll see companies that had been involved in COVID-19 vaccine work big time, uh, either shift to more products in the case of Moderna or uh, in Pfizer's case, cut back uh, on operations. And you know, Pfizer announced that they would be uh, cutting jobs and cutting back on operations a few weeks back. So you'll see uh, that of both uh, this, even as the vaccine makers wind up having to bring to market newer versions of their vaccines to cover for newer variants uh, that have emerged and continue to emerge. Thanks, Alex, for that update. We're also very excited to hear your interview with Rahul Kakar, president and CEO of Tome Biosciences shortly. Can you give our listeners some background on Tome and how they entered the news? Sure uh, thing. Uh, last week, Tome Biosciences emerged from stealth mode. Uh, they announced they had $213 million in financing. That's combined Series A and B. And uh, they have plans to create curative cell and, quote, integrative gene therapies. Those integrative gene therapies are capable of correcting genes in vivo. Now, Tome is a developer of genome editing treatments based on an improved version of PASTE technology. For what it's worth, PASTE stands for progressive programmable addition via site-specific targeting elements. And this new and improved version of PACE is called PGI, Programmable Genomic Integration, which is actually more a, a platform covering a series of approaches to genome editing, all designed to enable the insertion of any DNA sequence of any size into any program genomic location. Uh, now, the most advanced version of PGI, which Tome announced, was called 
Integrase Mediated PGI or IPGI, and that uses uh, proprietary integrases uh, to insert more than 30 kilobases of DNA with site specificity, they say, and various dividing and non-dividing cell types. Uh, so other PGI technologies have different enzymes, uh, which the which Tome hasn't said a lot about at this point, although they do say that they're protected by intellectual property IP above and beyond the three foundational patents covering paste. Now that original paste technology was developed by Omar Abudayeh and Jonathan Gutenberg. Uh, they co-founded Tome and now sit on the company's board. Tome said they're still very much involved uh, with the company in terms of uh, being a sounding board for executives and researchers, uh, which is interesting uh, to hear. Now, when PACE was first published last year uh, in, in Nature Biotech, uh, Omar and Jonathan wrote that they married advances in programmable CRISPR-based gene editing, such as prime editing, and they mentioned prime editing with precise site-specific integrases. And that raises the question of whether PACE, or now PGI users, need to license patents that cover prime editing. And I went into that in, in my article. Uh, though that uh, prime was developed in the lab of David Liu, who co-founded Prime Medicine based on that technology. Uh, so Tome says users of PGA don't need to license Prime Editing. However, Prime told me earlier this year that Paste, the original Paste uh, technology users needed to license uh, Prime. And that was also the view of a, another expert I had interviewed uh, back then, Jacob Shurkow of University of Illinois College of Law. So I reached out this time uh, for the latest story to David Liu, and he reminded me that Paste yields lower integration efficiencies than simple untethered Prime editing and recombinase systems. So he put in a, a better word for his <laughs> form of genome editing. And he thinks that's because paste fuses the prime editor and the integrase enzyme into a single protein chain, while Prime's approach typically uses them as two separate uh, proteins. Uh, now, Tomes says its initial plans call for developing these integrative gene therapies for monogenic liver diseases, as well as cell therapies for autoimmune diseases. Although Rahul said that the technology can be used across a variety of other diseases. So uh, the company says it'll disclose more details uh, about clinical indications for those first therapies to be developed, uh, as well as progress on potential partnerships at uh, some point during 2024. So we'll, we'll look forward to that. Omar and Jonathan, for what it's worth, were one-time former graduate students uh, who worked with Feng Zhang, the CRISPR pioneer at the Broad, and later became McGovern Fellows at MIT's McGovern Institute for Brain Research. Now, the two have since gone their separate ways, or, or should I say separate labs. Uh, Omar is now lead investigator at Brigham and Women's, uh, while uh, Jonathan holds the same position at Beth Israel Deaconess uh, Medical Center. And uh, there you go. Thanks, Alex, for that uh, dive into Tome. We're excited to hear your full interview with Rahul Kakar after this quick break. This episode of Touching Base is brought to you by Gen Biotechnology, the marquee peer review journal from the publishers of Genetic Engineering and Biotechnology News. Launched two years ago, Gen Biotechnology publishes exceptional research, reviews, opinion, and analysis across the biotech spectrum from genomics and symbio to AI and drug development. The journal features an outstanding editorial team, which is led by Chief Editor, 
Hannah Al-Samad, Senior VP at Altos Labs in California. Gem Biotechnology has already published exciting original research on gene editing to boost vitamin D tomatoes, CRISPR-based pest control, base editing delivery in a single AAV vector, and cost-effective 3D printing. Plus, Gem Biotechnology has featured exclusive interviews with biotech CEOs, insights from Wall Street financial analysts, and news features from Gem reporters covering the state of aging research, AI and protein design, and advances in organon chips. Gem Biotechnology is the new choice for novel and groundbreaking advances in the biotech field. Learn more at www.gembiotechjournal.com. Welcome back to Touching Base, the new podcast series from Jen. In this segment, Jen Senior Business Editor Alex Filipidis chatted with President and CEO of Tome, Rahul Kakar, on what to expect from the new gene editing company. Let's give it a listen. How does PGI build upon or differ from Paste, and then how IPGI differs from plain old PGI? So let me yeah. start with PGI and Paste. Yeah, sure. So, um, so, so. PGI versus paste. So, so PGI really is um, more of a concept. It's not a single technology, right? So if you want to talk about a single technology, we have to make a derivative of that and talk about integrase-mediated PGI versus PGI that can be accomplished using other types of enzymes that are not integrase-mediated. Um, and those are the subject for future conversations as we feel ready, we're, um, we're, feel that we're ready to announce those technologies which are currently being developed in our platform group. Um, but integrase-mediated PGI, so, so PGI as a concept is, is this idea of, you know, to differentiate ourselves from um, what's, what's been happening in prior generations of genomic therapies, um, you know, uh, cleavate, cleavase-mediated double-strand breaks, um, uh, 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 nickase-mediated uh, single base pair changes, um, or bases, cha changes in, in several base pairs at a time. This is something completely different, right? Programmable genomic integration is this idea of leapfrogging to hundreds, if not thousands, if not tens of thousands of base pairs inserted or changed at a time. So that is what we as a company are committed to because we feel that, and again, I'm a clinician, from a clinical standpoint, there is an entire generation of therapies we can create if we stay true to the and focused on that concept of, you know, reprogramming blocks of code in the human software in the human genome, um, when you talk about IPGI specifically, now to, you know, as, as, assuming I'm still answering your question, to come down to IPGI, it is a method for you know, based on paste using integrases uh, that allows us to do some of the largest insertions and multiplexed insertions um, within the spectrum of PGI. Um, but there are fundamental improvements to the core PACE technology um, that some of it is enzymatic improvements and proprietary enzymes we're using, evolution of what's out there in uh, the public domain um, that we've invented in our platform group. Uh, some of it is improvements and inventions on some of the structural components like guide RNAs, for instance. Uh, that we've brought to bear. And so bringing all that together, it's a it's a leapfrog beyond the original invention, which is why we felt like um, you know, calling it paste wasn't wasn't going to be true to the, to what we're actually inventing. So if I heard you right, there's differences in guide RNAs, differences in enzymes, whether those are uh, integrases or some other form of enzyme. Am I do I understanding that right? 
So for for IPGI, it's always integrase based. Right. That's, that's the I. But um, in terms, of we have we have invented um, and improved upon the original integrases described by our founders um, as one one example of some of the inventions that we've created uh, that significantly approve upon the original invention. The other, the other one, like we said, is you know just thinking yeah. about the components, right? There's integrate, there's there's CAS, mm -hmm. there's um, reverse transcriptase, there's integrase, there's guide RNA. This is a multi-component drug product, and almost in every instance, we've we've made proprietary improvements on the component. The improvements uh, do are uh, they enhancements in binding, enhancements in how it travels uh, through, or, or, or how are they yeah. best described? Yeah, it's a great question. So from a from a technical standpoint. The um the the best way to in general describe um our improvements are they're all driving towards uh, uh, integrative efficiency. Um, as you can imagine, um, the more alleles and the more cells you can edit in a given target organ, um, the more clinical impact you can have. Um, if your efficiencies are down in the one percent range, for instance, and there are Certainly other genomic engineering technologies out there that have been described in the academic literature, which have very low efficiencies, there's only a certain set of diseases you can go after um, that are amenable to low efficiency genomic um, editing. Um, but if you're able to drive your efficiencies, you know, tenfold higher than that, or, or you know, getting even high, you know, tenfold higher, 20-fold higher, et cetera, et cetera, the universe of clinical application um, becomes much more broad. Um, and so our efforts from uh, in our platform engineering group, um, as we engineer each of these components, is really focused on driving those efficiencies um, for so that we can um, have the most clinical impact that we uh, the the platform itself can have the most clinical impact possible. Mm -hmm. All right. On the uh, base pairs, I think the last time I spoke with Jonathan and Omar, it was 36,000 base pairs uh, that were shown in the PACE study. Uh, can the technology insert more and how quickly will that be a priority for Tome to go yeah. beyond that 30? Yeah, great question. We have certainly replicated, like I said, we have replicated and enhanced the efficiency of their base system as we moved from PACE to integrase mediated PGI or IPGI. Um, the, um, and we've replicated with, with drug-like reagents. Um, and so we can certainly insert, um, uh, gene or gene elements of that size, um, in, uh, preclinical studies, uh, routinely. Um, have we pushed the system beyond the kind of 30,000 plus base pair range? We have not, um, because... In, in the pipeline that we are forming, pipeline of clinical candidates we're forming, there has never been a need. Um, and so would we in the future potentially push the system past that? Um, if you look at integrases in nature, they can do 50, 100,000 base pairs. Have we gone to that level? There hasn't been a clinical need. Um, and our focus, you know, really from the very beginning when, when our CSO and I joined the company, you know, within the same week at the same time was we need to be hyper-focused on creating revolutionary therapies for patients. And so although there is certainly very interesting um, territory to potentially explore uh, beyond the 30,000 base pair range, we just haven't seen as of yet uh, the clinical need to do so. So we have not explored that. I saw that Omar and Jonathan were both members of the board uh, for Tome. Yeah. What, if any other involvement, do they have with the company? 
they have been a phenomenal pair of partners to the company. Um, they, uh, I'm in contact with them on a regular basis. Our, our CSO is in contact with them on a regular basis. Um, and they have been a source of, frankly, inspiration uh, to our scientists. We, um, we hold at least once or twice a year an internal symposium um, you know, styled very much like uh, a, a, an academic um, scientific symposium, poster presentations, uh, internal competitions for oral presentations, um, and they gave the keynote. Um, and so they they serve as both uh, operationally uh, uh, involved at the board level um, as a source of um, of counsel um, and and a sounding board to myself and the CSO. Um, and they 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 are truly inspiring to our to our uh, employees as well, our scientific employees as well. Mm. How many employees does uh, Tome have, and how much is that going to grow over the coming year? Yeah, we're um, we're just under 150 employees at the moment. Um, we have built, you know, at, to your question earlier, we have built uh, all of the core capabilities we need between um, R and D and CMC, um, and then a very lean uh, kind of GNA support function. Um, we will continue to grow, but the lion's share of the immediate growth um, uh, in building out our functions and formal and you know informal structures um, has largely been completed. So there will be some growth, um, particularly as we think about um, building um, uh, more manufacturing capability and uh, eventually you know clinical operational capability. Um, but I think where we are today. Um, is in a very, very uh, comfortable, lean but comfortable place to execute um, the the in the preclinical arena where we currently sit. The announcement said that Tome initially plans to develop integrative gene therapies for monogenic liver diseases and cell therapies for autoimmune. Okay. Um, why different modalities for both, and uh, what draw what is attracting Tome to these disease areas? Yeah, you know, and and I've done this in my entire career. Um, always taking a first principle bottom-up approach when it comes to understanding the most clinically impactful utilization of a core technology. Um, frankly, and I, st I still practice medicine. I still see patients at the Brigham Women's Hospital. As I think about the conversations I have with patients about the medicines that I am recommending for a certain condition, the patients don't generally care what the mechanism of action is. What they care about is how risky is it and how much benefit am I going to get? And so from that perspective, as, as we sat back and looked at PGI, um, we recognized that um, this technology has utility not just for correcting genes in vivo or what we call integrative gene therapies, um, really as, again, the maturation of this ability to correct um, natural defects uh, in genes but our ability to flexibly recode and reprogram DNA like software allows us to create very advanced cell therapies um, quite simplistically. Um, and so we recognize a profound opportunity. If you look uh, to, to, to have two verticals, uh, a integrative gene therapy vertical and a cell therapy vertical. And if you look at, you know, some of the other technologies and companies that you've talked about, nobody has a pipeline as diversified as ours. And I think that just derives fundamentally from, uh, is, is sort of a, a proof or, or evidence for how revolutionary this technology is. So can PGI be used in other disease areas eventually? Oh, absolutely. I, you know, my personal ambition is um, 
you know, you know, this is not my first rodeo. This is my third company. My personal ambition is to usher in uh, the mature era of genomic therapies and to really develop both integrative gene therapies and cell therapies across the entire textbook of Harrison's medicine for every therapeutic area. And then looking ahead, uh, how big of a pipeline do you envision uh, on, on both uh, modalities? Yeah, at this point, I would say quite broad, but um, you know, as we move into 2024, we anticipate both um, releasing data and more um, information about our chosen clinical indications, which we have chosen our first clinical indications um, uh, um, uh, as we head into 2024. We'd anticipate revealing uh, more information there. Now, can we expect to see any of these candidates enter the clinic in 24? Is that a longer term kind of project? Yeah, great question. I think I would say that as we move into 2024, we'll be releasing, um, uh, we anticipate to release uh, data that will uh, articulate kind of where we are in development, um, how the system is functioning, and um, what our, our future line of sight um, looks like. Sure. And uh, just looking ahead also, um, partnerships, uh, does home plan to go it alone, or is it looking more eventually at a, toward a partner? Yeah, I mean, with a technology this broad, um, there would certainly be areas of medicine and patients left behind if we were to not contemplate partnerships. So I think it would we wouldn't be true to our our um, our commitment to to medicine and to patients if we were not uh, um, discussing partnerships and those conversations continue. That's a wrap for this week's episode of Touching Base. The Gen Editorial team will be back after the new year with more biotech news coverage. On behalf of all of us at Gen, I'm Fei Lin. Happy holidays, and we'll see you next time. Happy holidays. Happy holidays, everyone. Happy holidays. Merry Christmas. Happy holidays.